Hey, Sarasota, it's Bob. So it's been a wonderful grind over the past 18 months. We've had some fabulous guests. We've produced over 150 episodes. and We've had over 10,000 listens from you wonderful folks in the greater Sarasota area. It's been a lot of fun, but also it's been a lot of work. And so we've decided to take a little bit of a break until this fall. When you check out other podcasts, you're going to see that most put out a new episode only once a week. We put out two, so of course that means there's twice the work. A lot of show notes, scheduling, guests, editing, etc., etc., etc. So we've decided to take a little break for the rest of the summer and we will resume this fall. And we'll let you know. But before I sign off, can you do me a little favor? Reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Drop us a little note. I'd like to know more about what you want to hear when we resume in the next couple of weeks. That'd be a big help because without you, dear listener, we would not exist. As always, thank you for tuning in. Have a wonderful summer, and we'll be back soon where you can listen, learn, and connect. Good morning, Sarasota. This is the Sarasota Stories Podcast, Episode 6. Who's not concerned about our environment, especially when you consider South Florida has had its own problems with red tide and algae blooms? Sometimes all we hear is how bad things are, when in reality, there are good things happening by people who care and are making a real difference right here in the greater Sarasota area. Today, we're going to meet a young aquatic biologist who is passionate about bringing back the indigenous aquatic plants and animals that not only reduce the need for pesticides, but rebuilds the natural waterways the way nature intended. Hi, I'm Bob Williams. I believe if you truly want to better understand your community to build personal, professional, and even lifelong relationships, then a willingness to hear each other's stories is an absolute must. That's why I created the Sarasota Stories podcast. It's a podcast dedicated to helping you get connected a little deeper with those living in this wonderful community we call home. In each episode, I interview business leaders, civic leaders, artists, authors, entrepreneurs, physicians, philanthropists, and others who are making a positive impact in the greater Sarasota area. Today, my guest is Sean Patton, founder and owner of Stocking Savvy. Stocking Savvy is a consulting firm focused on the natural restoration of the ecology. Sean is an aquatic biologist working in the swamps and lakes and bodies of water found in Sarasota Manatee counties. After being disillusioned by the traditional, costly, impermanent, and ineffective systems within the private sector of environmental management, he began researching alternative methods of restoring Florida's landscapes and waterways to their most balanced and natural forms. In this episode, Sean and I discuss how he first got interested in ecological studies, why synthetic fungicides and pesticides are so bad for the environment, alternatives that work just as well, what we can do as individuals to make a difference, and much, much more. I'm so glad you joined us today. And as always, it is my hope that you will listen, that you will learn, and connect. Well, Sean Patton, welcome to the Sarasota Stories cast. Hey, Bob, it's great to be here. Well, uh, Sean, I, I will say of all the businesses that I've talked to at the Chamber of Commerce and just being out and about in the Sarasota area, yours is one of the most fascinating for what you do. Tell us about Stocking Savvy and how you decided to go this direction in your life. 
So Stalking Savvy is an environmental consulting and habitat restoration business that I've been running for over three years now. We have a small team of local staff and we do habitat restoration projects all over Florida, mostly focusing on lakes, wetlands, ponds, and um, other specialty projects that other companies might struggle with. We work with your local landscapers, your local lake managers, and our goal is to just help to restore ecosystems. We're the first company to stock algae-eating fish and new species of plants to help prevent issues in lakes, ponds, and wetlands. And that's really what we're here to do is to help do large-scale restoration throughout the state. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been extremely rewarding. And it's also nice to know that we're doing something to help with huge environmental issues like red tide and climate change on everything from a backyard level to major developments in large communities and cities. Well, that's and that is fascinating. I guess my my question is, is so, so growing up at some point you became concerned about the environment or wanted to do more about the environment. Was there anybody in your background or any mentor or whatnot that said, hey, Sean, you should go in this direction? So my parents were always very supportive. And when I decided to go to New College, Florida, a wonderful local school where I got my brilliantly unique um, knowledge from, that was a great start. And my parents were helpful there. I actually didn't really start getting into a lot of the aquatic um, and freshwater biology until right after college, where after doing a short um, you know, year and a half, that job right after college where I was working in a pet store, I started working for a company called Aquatic Systems, where um, one of the main technicians there, Mike and Stefan, who ran the shop, they were both extremely supportive of me and my research. They even gave me some of the more interesting lakes and wetlands and sites to monitor. It was actually while working at this company that I came up with my prevention techniques, multimodal biological control, which basically, you know how in... Florida, we have tens of thousands of lakes and wetlands and stuff. We're only required to put in mosquito fish. Now, Bob, what do you think mosquito fish eat? <laughs> mosquitoes? Hey, it ain't rocket science. It's fish science. Mosquitoes eat, oh, sorry, mosquito fish eat mosquitoes. Right. We don't actually put anything into these ponds and lakes and wetlands that eat algae or inv- or plants or help clean up the muck on the bottom. We only are required mm. to put mosquito fish. So I did a huge body of research to find all sorts of other things that we could add to the ponds that are native. So no cane toads or pythons in people's ponds. We're just restoring habitat in a way that matches the natural ecosystems. And then after doing that, I started my company. Um, another mentor that I've had has been very helpful for really getting the hard science done has been Bruce Holst and Liz Gandy over at Selby Gardens. They're the botanists over there. We do the Ecoflora project, which is basically helping people to do citizen science and learn about plants. And they've been great mentors on some of the hard science and the botany side, which as a fish guy, I was not very comfortable in for a little while. And so it's been great to really dig into that research, if you will. But there's a real symbiotic relationship between the animals and the plants. And so you had to really integrate those two things. So Talk a little bit about that, please. So again, when we found that biocontrols, and there's a reason the University of Florida does a huge amount of research on this, where it's the same thing as having a big fish tank. When you have algae issues in your fish tank, um, because you're constantly adding nutrients to the system, well, you're going to get algae growing, or you have to have other plants to soak up those nutrients. And if you have too much algae, well, it smothers the other plants, it clogs the filter. Um, some of these algaes can be extremely poisonous, like red tide and salt water, microcystins and fresh water. And so you have to do something to help control it. And a lot of people don't realize this, but when you're on land, you know, the food pyramid, 
where where the biomass pyramid where like you know there's lions and tigers the little part on top then as you go down it gets bigger and bigger until you get to the plants well in water ecosystems that's flipped the tiny little bottom parts on the bottom and that's the algae and then as it gets up you get more and more biomass at the top the heaviest and biggest part of the system are the whales seals and sharks and you're like sean how does the biggest system eat all the smaller parts of the pyramid wouldn't that not work well here's the thing the lower on the pyramid you go the faster the reproduction whales take you know years to have you know baby calves whereas algae can double its weight every 6 hours so you have to constantly keep up with it and so not only do we help put in plants and butterfly gardens and floating islands all these things to help soak up the nutrients to shade out algae and to um, compete with it but to also provide habitat for many of the fish we stock you the flagfish of my operation is the american flagfish and it's a really cool native fish to florida it's got red and white stripes and a little blue star and looks like the American flag and it's native <laughs> to the state. And so I'm, and it, I had no algae. idea. Isn't that cool? Like biology is so cool. And I'm glad you're on here. I love to talk about this stuff. And <laughs> well, I will say, I will say you mentioned algae. Uh, algae is a, we could do an entire program on algae because it's being used as biofuels. It's a great food source uh, for humans as well. But but you you were mentioning about a little bit earlier about, you know, some of the projects that you have done. And I I don't want to get in too far into you talk about specifically some of those projects that you have done that I guess you're most proud of. Well, what what were those and and, um, what did you like about them? So since we're in Sarasota, let's stick to some of the Sarasota projects we've done. One of the best ones that I love to talk about and the most easy for the public to access, because we do work a lot with private homeowners and communities, and I don't want people tramping through their backyards, um, would be at the Bay Project. We've helped design a lot of their bioswales and retention areas, but we also did a floating butterfly garden, where it's basically a floating island in the middle of their um, little retention pond that soaks up nutrients and pollution from the water and um, puts it into plant growth on top that attracts a lot of butterflies and birds. We even had snapping turtles nesting on the islands. Many birds are resting on it. We have some pictures on our website. It's one of our um, visually most stunning projects. And it also brings a lot of butterflies to the area. And considering it's right next to the Sarasota Butterfly Society, it's extremely cool. We've also done some research and development projects where we're trying to bring new plants into captivity or plants back into captivity so that people can actually access them. We were successful last year with the American Lotus, and we're hoping to work on some new ones like dune ground cherries or the giant Florida tick seed this year, where some of these plants are in captivity, but they're just not available or they're extremely low. Some, like the dune ground cherry, just aren't in captivity. You can't access them, and considering that's a native and edible plant, we want to make these more accessible. And that way people can do restoration and grow food in their own backyards. And with Florida native plants, they're not only less water, fertilizer, and maintenance, but you also get all the birds and bees and insects that rely on them, which you don't get with non-native species. But that is, that is really cool. I guess, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've looked at uh, recently, I mean, I've always been kind of a, uh, wanted to do a little bit of permaculture on my, uh, on my property. And I have a very, very tiny, uh, uh, have a very, very tiny lot, but it sounds like you kind of do permaculture in the water. 
We do and perma- for, perm- for permaculture basically mimics nature. A, a, a definition there. Permaculture ba- basically is where humans take uh, nat- take natural and native uh, methodologies and they, they just apply it to like an agricultural uh, outcome. So, so talk about what you do that at the um, at the water level. So we've done permaculture in both lakes, wetlands ponds, rivers, but we've also done permaculture in just people's yards. Um, some of my staff are much better at the yard-based permaculture than I am. I'm definitely more of an aquatic specialist, though my staff help round out areas where I'm not as strong in. And that's the thing. There's not only a ton. My One of my mottos is if it's not native and it's not edible, why plant it? Think about that. Every time you're planting something that's non-native, you're rolling the dice that it becomes an invasive species and takes a lot of um, time, money, and energy to control. Whereas if it's native or edible, you're supporting the environment, you're supporting your food. And in small lots like yours, there's a lot of different ways you can do this, whether it's to do um, very strategic planting and get more plants per square foot, whether it's doing living walls and structures, or we even have one client where their entire house is built under a meadow. They mow their roof. It keeps their AC bills down. They have more they have a cool. meadow on the top. There's all now, sorts of Is this of in Florida? Is this in Florida? That's in Sarasota. Wow. That's in okay. Sarasota County. I thought um, you had to be more in a, um, you know, a hillier location to do that type of stuff. They built the hill over the house. Oh, wow. And um, another okay. good example of that this, is... Is it, earth, is it an earth ship then? Kind of, yes. Um, And it's a very, very cool project. We've mostly been helping them with the lake, though. They did the Earthship on their own. And so we can help turn the top of the Earthship into a meadow or help. um, We gave them, well, they bought some American lotus from us to get edible aquatic plants. And so there's all sorts of things you can do to help improve your property. And with things like American lotus, papaya, persimmons, mulberries, those are all native and edible trees. There's a lot of different things that are native that are also edible. And so you can make some really cool permaculture designs. Fascinating. I mean, and just for our listeners, Earthship is, well, tell us what Earthship is very quickly. Um, Earthships vary wildly depending on where you're making them. And they're basically trying to aim to be as sustainable as possible. So yeah. like a lot of the Earthships in Arizona tend to be built to reduce heat and also keep the building warm at night. So you're not constantly turning on the air conditioning and the heat. Um, they serve to store a lot of water. They're usually made out of sustainable materials or recycled materials. And it's just trying to be a little better to the environment. Mm. Well, well, back to um, your aquatic undertakings there. What are some of the techniques that you saw that were being applied here that you said, look, we got to go in a different direction? And what, what, led you to the, what led you to the point where you said, I got to develop some of my own techniques? So one of the biggest things that I tell communities is to use herbicides as a last resort. And herbicide management is kind of the go-to bread and butter. You know, just spray the problem and it goes away, right? Well, most of the things that we're spraying aren't invasive species. Herbicides were actually made not to, you know, burn down rainforests and things, but to control invasive species. Um, And with algae, algae is not invasive. It's just the thing that it's everywhere. It's in the air. It's in any water. You leave a cup of water out long enough, algae will start to grow in it. And so algae is one of the most common things that's sprayed and it's sprayed mostly with copper. So algae will grow in any water that has nutrients. And so you use copper sulfate to spray it. The algae dies. And then one of two things happens. Either it regrows, except now it's got a thicker mucus coat, or it might be a more harmful algae, because the nutrients are still there. 
The copper sinks through the water after killing the algae and binds to the soil. Copper kills anything without a backbone. It's extremely lethal to most small organisms. Most small organisms eat algae. Hey, now you just killed all the natural processes. And so you have to spray more copper. And a lot of the pest organisms like mosquitoes can grow, you know, in less than a week or two weeks, which is the maximum amount of time you can spray copper. So you get more mosquitoes and midge flies and less things like dragonflies, which eat them. So now you're not only getting worse public health, but you're getting worse lake health. But then there's the other thing that can happen. And this is a bigger issue, but one that most lake managers rely on. If you spray all the algae and it dies and the nutrients go back in the water and then it rains and it pushes all those nutrients and um, copper out of the lake, that's perfect. Now the lake looks clean, but where did the nutrients go? Where did the copper go? Well, it goes out into our rivers, bays, estuaries, and the ocean. And Moat Marine has put out on their website, you know, this is basic public knowledge that inshore nutrient pollution can worsen and aggravate red tide. Red tide is natural, but we're definitely making it worse. Tampa Bay had the worst red tide ever in the weeks following the Piney Point spill. It's the same reason why you put nutrients and fertilizer on your lawn to make it green. Well, guess what? Algae grows a lot faster than grass. And so it's, and Naples even found that it was stormwater pollution specifically that was contributing to dead zones, basically where there's so much algae growing and dying at the same time that it sucked all the oxygen out of the water and nothing could survive there. That's bad. The only time we should be using herbicides is if there's an invasive species where there's nothing else that can kill it, like Brazilian pepper. You even if I've ripped out entire trees using tractors and trucks and stuff. And guess what? Sometimes root fragments will regrow. Um, But this isn't to say that there are no um, environmentally um, beneficial herbicides like some, like peroxide products, break down into hydrogen and oxygen. You spray those into a toxic algae bloom. Unlike copper, they don't last forever. They break down into hydrogen and oxygen. Or there are some um, herbicides that can actually be safely applied around cypress trees, like flumioxazan. You want very specific herbicides that break down quickly in the environment. Roundup isn't good for, guess what? I'm going to pretend we don't care about people. We don't care if Roundup might give you cancer. There's a lot of other reasons not to use it. One, it hits a lot of the non-targets. It'll hit other plants and um, organisms too, too. It's got a lot of nutrients. It's been used for so long that many of the main species you targeted that you know you use Roundup for, like torpedo grass, which is a common water-invasive aren't really affected by it anymore. They resist it now. And this is a big thing we're seeing is that herbicides can become resisted, whereas it's hard to resist a variety of fish. And that's why we use things like the um, sterile grass carp for invasive plants, the flag fish for controlling nutrients, because not only do they eat the algae and the plants, which they can't learn to resist, mm. you know, it's just, just, it's an organism, but they also absorb the nutrients and move the nutrients up into the system. So what better way to fight red tide than to use the American freedom fish to eat the algae? This isn't <laughs> rocket science. It's That's basic right. biology. That's great. That's great. Is it a misnomer to think that there is a natural solution for a lot of the chemical pesticides, fungicides that we use out there? Is, is there typically something that you can find that will take care of that problem, but typically it's just a cost issue? Yes. 95% of the time, you can avoid a lot of these um, synthetic herbicides by doing other things. And sometimes the biological- Typically oil-based, I would assume. Is yeah, it, some chemical, of them are- chemical? 
some of them are, some of them are based on plants, some of them are environmentally friendly. Like that's the thing. I have an aquatic herbicide license. I'm very familiar with a lot of these herbicides and they vary wildly. Again, some things like copper never break down. A lot of people like Sean, you should push to ban Roundup. Copper is far more damaging because it lasts forever. It doesn't break down. It's copper. It's there forever. It's a heavy metal. We should not be using that to treat yep. algae that regrows in two weeks. Um, but again, there are those peroxide products or like how many, uh, a lot of the audience members have probably used the mosquito dunks, those little discs that you put into like pots or little ponds or bromeliads to keep mosquitoes from growing. That's actually not an herbicide. That's a bacterium. So whenever we can use fish, bacteria, physical harvesting is a great way to remove algae and invasive species and also remove the nutrients. Whenever we can use something else, we should. But if you say we can't use herbicides, sometimes you get to things like Brazilian pepper or torpedo grass where nothing else works. There's five mm. methods of control. Social, which is oh, sorry, cultural, which is like just laws preventing the transport of invasive species or like the banning of Brazilian pepper on a statewide level. Social, which is telling your neighbors and friends, don't plant that pepper tree, please, for the love of fish, don't plant all these pepper trees. Third is physical harvesting, physical removal, physical barriers. Fourth is biocontrols. So, you know, using the flagfish to eat algae or uh, UF uses the air potato beetle to eat air potato. These are either native species that can help clean up the environment or obligate herbivores that can't eat anything else. The air potato will starve. Sorry, the air potato beetle starves to death if it doesn't eat air potato. Even other potatoes, it'll die on. And then finally, we have chemical controls. But if you ban all chemical controls, sometimes you lose access to certain things that are useful, like pond dye. Pond dye is a chemical control, but it just it makes the water darker so algae can't grow. We see that naturally with things like tannins or, you know, we're using the mosquito bacteria, which is lumped under a chemical control, even though it should be biological. But uh, that's semantics. So there's a <laughs> lot of reasons to use this, but we need to use the right tool for the right job. I want to want to see a construction guy using, you know, a sludge hammer to, you know, hang photographs and things in my house. It's always about using the right tool for the right job. Well, that's well, I appreciate that. Uh, and that's great insight. I do want to I do want to switch a little bit here to the seasonality of uh, how we deal with environmental issues here. I mean, what's the difference between, say, the winter months here and the summer months of what impacts our environment? So much of Florida, and especially a lot of the more high-income residents and high-income communities, are seasonal. You know, a lot of the snowbirds come down for the winter months where it's cool, it's um, not very warm, and then they leave during the summer when it gets extremely hot and humid and it rains a lot. Well, algae and a lot of the invasive species like warm, wet weather. When most of people aren't here, especially the ones who tend to be wealthier or making decisions or choosing where to put money, if all the algae grows in the summer and your erosion problems are in the summer when you're not here and you come back and you're like, well, that wasn't too bad. You know, I had a little bit of algae for a few months at the beginning and end of when I was here. You're not seeing the massive algae blooms. A lot of the year round residents will see, I've seen algae blooms over 60 feet wide of thick mats of algae. Oh my. I've seen water hyacinth grow from just two or three plants that someone put in their pond because they thought they looked nice to cover several acres in a single season from like three or four plants. A lot of these things can double or triple their weight every few days to few weeks. And so it's all about prevention. And unlike herbicides, 
and a lot of the other management techniques, which get a little less effective in high heat, high humidity areas, or, you know, erosion gets worse. A lot of these plants and fish and biocontrols actually get more effective because this is the time, oh, this is when I need to breed, or this is where I'm more active too, because it's warmer, or I'm growing and I can outcompete the algae. And so it's all about working with these systems. And that's what we try to do at Stocking Savvy is we're not here to say, you have to put this ugly plant along your shoreline, and you're going to like it. But what if we made your shoreline a butterfly garden to that made it more beautiful, improved your property values, and helped shade out the algae, but also we had more biodiversity? And guess what? That's not very expensive. They actually found through the uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and At- Atmospheric Administration, that living shorelines were the cheapest. You save money by being environmentally friendly. Riprap and seawalls give you huge long-term problems. And even though you think the problem's fixed, they still erode. And there's a lot of different things that erode them. Seawalls should only be used if they're already there. Otherwise, you should do something else. Riprap is okay in marine environments because a lot of things like to grow on them. Um, But even then, if you can do things like seagrasses or butterfly gardens or mangroves or just use plants because they regrow and they also reduce storm surge damage. They found that a lot of these living shorelines were much more resilient to shoreline damage during storms. You plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Well, Sean, the first thing you talked about was prevention. And so bring it down to like the individual level, the scalability of our ability as individuals to really impact our environment, the greater Sarasota area. Because, I mean, I, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like most uh, folks living around here. I mean, I've used you know, some of the products you know, that I'm no longer going to use now because of what you shared. I didn't realize about the copper issue. But, you know, you, you, you get involved with your life and you get kind of distracted. And it's easy to go out and buy a product to take care of a particular weed or whatever it is. But what can I as an individual do to help? Uh, impact our environment and and make it better. So one of the big things I recommend is voting. A lot of the stuff should be just, you know, common sense legislation, but there are a lot of legislatures who just don't pay attention to it or don't put the money and prevention is always cheaper. They find that every dollar that goes to preventing the spread of invasive species, whether that's saying, Hey, don't release your pythons into the wild or don't plant these non-native species that saves thousands of dollars in maintenance. And so if you're a homeowner, um, some of the things that I recommend is one, always plant native species. Native species require less water, less fertilizer. They're more drought tolerant most of the time. And if you put the right plant in the right place, it's much easier and if you're, you know, if you really like gardening, you can, there's thousands of species. Florida has over 2000 native plants, 400 are found nowhere else on earth. So if you're going and you're buying the same oleander and snake plant everyone else has at Home Depot, where are these native species supposed to go? In fact, there's some species like the Minnesota pawpaw that only lives in Manatee and Sarasota counties. You won't find it anywhere else on earth. Or the Savannah blazing star only lives in four counties in Florida. So why would you want to have a yard that looks like Asia or Africa or Europe or God forbid Chicago when you could have a brilliantly unique Florida yard? So plant those natives. 
And if you're wanting to have lower maintenance, plant more shrubs and trees that don't require regular things. If you have a big yard and you still want to walk and run on it, but you hate mowing, and let's just say as a lazy millennial that you got on this podcast, <laughs> I hate mowing. Why do I want to mow a lawn? Oh, that's what my dad likes to do. There's a lot of native ground covers like um, blue-eyed grass, like daisy fleabane, like frog fruit, like bacopa, like sunshine mimosa, which... Oh my God, Sunshine Mimosa is one of the single best ground covers you can get. Not only do all of those you never have to mow, you can if you want to keep it looking more a little even, but you never have to mow them. Sunshine Mimosa makes its own fertilizer, so you never have to worry about fertilizer. You mix it in with other plants, it adds some nitrogen. It flowers beautiful purple powder puffs that look like something out of Dr. Seuss. And when you touch it or step on it, the leaves close up. So why would you be spending thousands of dollars on a grass lawn when you could have a lawn with purple pink powder puffs that closes when you step through it like you're in a Disney movie? Come on. <laughs> that's amazing. And guess what? This stuff is cheap and that's drought tolerant. Once you get it established, it's one of the easiest ground covers to do. And for people being like, well, I don't know where to get native plants. Take your face, roll it across your keyboard, type in native plant nursery. Um, there's one at the, we actually have mm -hmm. a, one at the Sarasota Farmer's Market every Saturday. We also have the Florida um, native plant nursery at the end of Fruitville. There's Sweet Bay up in Parrish. You can look up FAN, which is the Florida Association of Native Nurseries. And guess what? Communities can even get grants to use native plants. We know that they're so necessary for just all wildlife that we're giving money to buy them or Sarasota County gives them away for free. They give away free trees and very cool because they support the ecosystems and they're less maintenance, save some time and money. Gosh, we're showing the time we have left. Talk about the types of uh, folks that should contact you and the type of work that you would do for them. So we have a few different groups of clients. Obviously we have some clients who just want a few plants or to do landscaping. And um, those are a smaller subset of our clients, but it's still important and we still want to reach out to them. And so um, we'll have our staff come out and help design native plant yards and native ecosystems for your landscape. And that's um, definitely a lot of our smaller projects. Our bread and butter tend to be communities and HOAs where they're like, Sean, we're having algae blooms or lake issues or erosion, or we just want more birds and butterflies and bees in our community. Or like I had one um, group that wanted to have more otters and we made an otter sanctuary. And guess what? Within five minutes of installing it, a family of otters was in there and playing. And so it's amazing Who how knew? fast ecosystem restoration can happen. Yeah. And then we also have our largest clients. We have a few cities and developments that work with us and we do long-term consulting, but obviously my company is five people. We cannot install and um, do every single project. So we oftentimes work with like your local landscapers to manage them or your local um, city um, and county people to manage and implement the projects. We're experts. We spend a lot of time doing research, development, um, planning, and then we work with you and your communities to um, complete the project. Oftentimes we can install, but to maintain, we work with you and we make these big management plans, which my staff loves so much to put together of just notes and appendices and things where if you ever have a question, you just flip through the management plan and the answer is there. And we constantly update these management plans over the years. If you look at some of my plans from three years ago, they don't hold a candle to what we're doing today. And mm. that's why I love what I do is I'm a scientist. We're constantly evolving and pushing the edge of what we know. And, you know, I 
despite what a lot of my, I tell my friends and family, don't know everything. And so there are some times, and we have a newsletter where we put this out, where you know we're like, hey, here's an update for something that we've been telling people. The science has changed. It's evolved. Or there might be a new, better way for doing things. Or there's a new species that we can use that would have been better for certain projects. And we're like, hey, if you want, we can come in and put some of these new plants that we now have access to. Just like the environment, stocking savvy is constantly growing and changing. And people like you having me out on these podcasts is great. People who hire us is great. Whenever we do a project, sometimes it seeds projects downstream or it improves water quality for the areas around them or they get more birds. We've had endangered birds and butterflies in many of our sites. And so anyone who hires us, anyone who plants native plants or stocks native fish is helping the environment, not only for them, but the communities around them. Sean, that's very cool. And I appreciate your enthusiasm because it's certainly something that's needed. And since I have moved down here coming from the Midwest, of course, I've become a lot more concerned about the uh, environment and the ecology of our waterways. And so, I, again, I appreciate your enthusiasm. So besides uh, the Sarasota Farmers Market, where else can people reach you if they want to know more? So we are, yeah, we are at the Farmers Market every Saturday, 7 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can also reach us through our website, StockingSavvy.com. You can call us at 941-500-2218. You can also reach us through Instagram and Facebook and whatever apps the young kids are using these days, um, just at Stocking Savvy, and that's S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-V-V-Y. And you know, one of our staff will get back to you, or sometimes I'll get back to you. I'm very fun on the phone. As you can see, I'll talk your ear off all day. (laughs) Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure having you on this show. Let's do it again real soon. Perfect. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy. Anytime you all need some plant and fish puns, if you're eeling up to it. (laughs) All right, John. Thanks again. No problem. See ya. 